Hi, welcome back to AR Zone. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. These continuing interviews on intersectional veganism and related issues are in association with VegFest UK. In our first interview of 2017, Roger and I are very happy to welcome today's guest, Harold Brown. Harold, who features in the documentary, Peaceable Kingdom, The Journey Home, spent over half of his life in animal agriculture. Growing up on a beef farm in Michigan and later working in the dairy industry, Harold has been involved in the behind the scenes operations of food production that uses other animals. Today, Harold is an activist advocating for sustainable food production, social and environmental justice, animal rights and peace through nonviolence. It's our pleasure to welcome you today, Harold. Thanks for joining us. I'm honored to do this. Thank you for having me. Hi, Harold. Hi, Roger. Harold, you've spoken about being emotionally attached from other animals as individuals when you were when you were an animal farmer. In terms of intersectionality, there seems to be a degree of emotional detachment and a rejection of the issues humans face in their lives, such as sexism, racism and ableism, from some animal advocates who wish to focus solely on the animals. Do you see any parallels there? Oh, absolutely. I, I would I would start with what agriculture has brought us. I mean, we're all members, you know, Roger, you're in Ireland, um, Carolyn, you're in Australia, and I'm in the United States, and we are all products and members of a herding culture, which stretches back arguably eight to 10,000 years. And what that is basically encultured us into is uh, viewing animals as something that, are, that is the other, and that's really no news to your audience. But for me, when I think about this, and I've thought about it a lot over the 20 years that I've been at this, it is, I think, important to understand that when humans first domesticated plants and animals, a very crucial thing happened at that point, and that is... It, became necessary and breed plants you have to control the feminine because if you don't control the feminine then it's impossible to do either so horticulture agronomy animal husbandry that all requires control of the feminine and how that has played out over thousands of years has created us a situation to where we live in cultures that sees some life worth more than other life. And it just necessitates that. Now, as a kid growing up in that, I was totally indoctrinated into that. You know, first by my parents, who taught me that animals and basically nature are things of utility. Then that was reinforced by a dominionistic view of my church that I grew up in. And then... My extended family, our farming community, uh, 4-H, and everything is connected with that. It all um, reinforced this worldview that controlling the feminine is um, seen as necessary. Now, you mentioned ableism. Ableism, you know, actually I hadn't really thought about this until you brought that up. But ableism is something to... If there is a school of philosophy that agriculture and animal husbandry embraces, it's utilitarianism. So with that said, if you, if we had birth of a calf 
who had a physical disability or seemed to have some other problem, sometimes it born was a neurological problem, they're just killed on the spot. As soon as that becomes up, they're killed. Now, there are some people in the utilitarian community that make these arguments that children that are born with certain disabilities, if they are deemed to not be able to be uh, contributing members of society, then they may need to be um, euthanized or killed. I see that there's, a, you know, this crowd, there really are no boundaries to this. It's it, it just one just flows into the next. Harold, as a person who was once emotionally detached themselves and turned that completely around, is there any advice that you could give to animal advocates in particular who focus solely on the animals with with, with a complete disregard for, for human struggles and for human issues. I guess I'm referring to the non-humans first groups who have a total rejection of, of intersect or of what they think intersectionality stands for. Fair amount of activists who feel this way and all I can say is they're curmudgeonly. So I can understand that too because when we look at the larger picture of things we become frustrated and we become angry at these injustices. And uh, since we see humans as the vector for injustice against all others, then we tend to want to, I guess, trade in our membership card for the human species because of we are, as uh, my friend Will Anderson in his book, This is Hope, we are the mega predator on this planet. So, I can totally understand that, but I think was if we sit and think about what it is to be vegan and what it is to be an animal rights advocate, there are certain basic precepts that we accept, which is that when we look at animals in particular, we, we want to treat them with dignity, with respect, with empathy, and with compassion. And why wouldn't we carry that over into people because how are we ever going to change the hearts and minds of people if we don't show them respect, show them dignity? They're not going to listen to us. Uh, it, it basically shuts us off from communicating with people who are not like us. Um, exactly. This is really, it kind of hits home because I look at it as there but for the grace of God go I. So. When I look at somebody who's even belligerent in saying that, well, I like meat and blah, 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 bacon rules, well, I understand that. You know, I, I, I was once that person, and I was once the person who provided people with that stuff. But I don't think anybody is beyond redemption. So what does this require of us as activists? I would say that we have to ask ourselves, Every moment, are we living with moral consistency? And I think this has become kind of my little buzz phrase, is that we live, we are to live morally consistent, then we don't exclude other people from our, our circle of dignity, respect, empathy, and compassion. 
because we'll never change the world if we do that. Open myself up to animals was moral imagination and emotional courage. Well, those are very hard things to do if you come from the other side of the fence like I did. But I think if you're an animal advocate, it requires those same things to show up in the world to say that all beings are worthy of the benefit of the doubt and that we should have the moral courage to open our hearts because that's really what it's about. It's trusting our hearts, opening our hearts. And yeah, people are going to stomp on it once in a while, but that's okay because there's a great sign from a line from a Carly Simon song that there's more room in a broken heart. So, and I truly believe that because that's happened to me. My heart's been broken so many times by the things I know, the things I've seen, the changes I've made, but it's made me a better person. I truly believe that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I love that you said that nobody's beyond redemption. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I really appreciate that you said that. Well, so, Harold, it's uh, great to speak to you again. Um, in fact, uh, your podcast that you did with me a few years ago is still my most popular one, so I thank you for that. I, I must say, though, you might have lost the audience referencing Carly Simon. Come on. <laughs> 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 and, and and before I get into my question, you mentioned dominionism uh, in your first answer. Uh, I suppose you're kind of getting that from Jim Mason, right? A little bit, but uh, it really, I mean, Jim and I, you know, we both grew up on farms. Jim has a little bit, uh, and he won't take offense to this, uh, but he is a curmudgeon, <laughs> a total curmudgeon. Um, but, you know, that's okay. I, I don't know that I, I really take that idea of dominionism from him. I think I draw it more from my own background and that it's something that I developed over time as I understood, as I made this change in my life and I started to understand uh, dominionism from kind of the Abrahamic perspective. I saw that it doesn't really serve animals, it doesn't serve the planet, and it certainly doesn't serve us. But what I have evolved into and it's an, actually an argument that I make now is that it's what it boils down what dominionism really boils down to is something we see in society and our politics and across the board and it's what I call a might makes right theology now many of our listeners are, are uh, secular it's still this might makes right idea becomes such a strong belief that it does, it, it, it's exactly that. It's a very strong belief. So it mm, becomes a right. type of theology in that we make these arguments and these justifications for violence. Now, for an activist, there are some activists that I've run into that have uh, made the argument that violence against other people that are harming animals is justifiable. And I can understand that because... Anger can take you there, and hatred can take you there if you don't keep it in check. But that also is part and parcel of this idea of a might-makes-right theology. It, we start to develop uh, systems of thought, and Roger, you probably understand this better than I do or can put it in a better context with sociological work and social sciences, that you know belief systems and the, the mythos we create for ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves, um, as Joseph Campbell would say, is um, how we develop our own 
stories, our own mythos, our own theologies, whether it's secular or religious. And um, it, and I don't see that the might makes right theology is useful in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, thanks for that. Actually, um, that's that's great because um, those people who are into pro-intersectionality, um, it's probably something they ought to check out, this concept of dominionism, because it, it's a... Uh, it's an intersectional idea, really. Anyway, so on to my question then, really. In a, in a great conference address that you made in 2007, Harold, you know, that, that conference, you know what I mean, you described yourself as a big picture kind of guy. You had a lot to say about welfare and rights in those days, but you also talked about the global impact of the so-called Green Revolution on a number of nations. So that was the intersectional part of your talk. So can you update us on this, uh, please? Is this still an issue, like the myth of free trade agreements, uh, for example, or the intensification of farming, creating human refugees and immigration? Are those still ongoing issues for you? Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, the situation has just escalated since 2007, and it's gotten much worse. Um, and I would encourage your listeners to do a little homework. Uh, if they go to the BBC, but not BBC World, but BBC UK, and because for some reason you can't find it on BBC World, but you go to their search bar and just enter suicide belt and see where that takes you, the videos and the stories of what's happening in India. Uh, the Green Revolution went there. It went to Africa. It's still ongoing in the United States, but they dropped the term only because it's not um, people caught on to the Orwellian bent to it. So the just the travesties that are going on with companies like Nestle who are just see have, have proclaimed that water is not a human right and are basically pumping aquifers all over the world dry for the sake of making soft drinks and bottled water. That is the biggest crisis we're facing. And our wars are, you know, the, the, the current conflicts, especially in Africa, are foundationally on those. It bled through the news a little bit in the United States about Darfur years ago, and they got smart enough not to mention it anymore. But when that conflict had escalated, it was about the northern pastoralists who were moving south, and then they were calling it an ethnic cleansing. But the problem they the, the, the leak there was calling, it was the Northern Pasolos. They were the herders who went to the south, which were mainly, uh, crop farmers. The people in the north had basically lost their pasture, but they, they also had used up all their water. So they had to go where there was pasture and water. It was like a bad western movie in the United States. It was a range war. And Darfur is a range war, but then it became more than that. Because when you can, this is the intersection of it, is that when you can devalue the life of the sentient beings who make up the biggest part of the biomass of this planet, it's so much easier to devalue those people that you need to take their resources from. And that's how Darfur is. That, many of the conflicts in Africa are over this. is basically water and arable land. In India, the suicide belt, well, there's a temperate zone that goes east to west in, in India, which has traditionally been called the green belt. It's where most crops and uh, food is grown in India. But because of the intervention of uh, American agribusiness, 
that has now brought in the vertical uh, integration of agriculture and the green revolution. So farmers of all scales who are not willing to sign on to contracts with these big American agribusinesses or are protesting, are losing their water because of companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle, their groundwater's disappearing, and in protest to their government's water policies and their partnership with American agribusiness, they're committing suicide. They take a glass of Roundup or pesticide and they go out in the field, drink it, and die in protest. And last I knew, Vandana Shiva said that there are approximately, uh, since 2005, I believe it was, that there are close, at this point, close to 10,000 farmers who have committed suicide in protest. So it's, and it hasn't stopped. So it's something that is just this globalization, the globalization of intensive agriculture, of this chemical agriculture model is um, an animal agriculture in particular because those other systems are necessary if you're going to globalize animal agriculture, which has now forced India into a situation where they're the world's largest broiler chicken operation or producer and China as the world's largest pig and pork producer in the world. So, but this is all at the behest of American agribusiness and this idea of fair, uh, free trade. Oh, not fair trade, free trade and globalization. So it's a, um, it's a thing. I don't see any slowdown to it by what I've seen. And it's also something that we should be involved with because it's just as because of these policies, it's escalating the death of more animals and the death of more people, not only by their diet, but the farmers who want to grow food for humans, but are being forced out so they can be bought out or the land just literally taken over by eminent domain to produce food for animals so that they, that can go through the pipeline. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. I mean, it's um, still a major problem then. You mentioned Nestle. I think we're both from a generation that probably boycotted Nestle. I don't think I'd ever knownly consumed a Nestle product. Going back to that talk that I mentioned, you, you mentioned then the importance of grassroots and community-based action and suggest that radical change does not trickle down from the top. Uh, I assume, because I know you, that you still hold, uh, you know, hold that view. It seems to me then that uh, pro-intersectionality efforts depend on the grassroots in particular. You know, the corporations are just not going to do it, are they? No, not at all. The large NGOs and uh, the large nonprofits, even in the animal arena, are highly resistant to intersectionality. Um, at once upon a time, I used to work for a large animal sanctuary here in the United States. And when I started working there, I said, you know, I, w- I would always take the interns every month to see a stockyard and then bring them back to where they uh, were housed. And I would spend a couple hours kind of helping them process emotionally and, and psychologically what they were going through. And then I argued, why don't, because it wasn't any farther to go to, the Women's Rights Museum in Seneca Falls, New York, but they said absolutely not. 
And I could not wrap my head around that. And I couldn't get an answer. It was just a, de a declarative no, and that was it. And there was no discussion to it. So I never got an answer why they didn't do it. But it was just not something they were willing to do. And I didn't understand it. You know, two, three hours of taking all these interns, male and female, up to the Women's Rights Museum, which is nearby, and allowing them to get a sense, especially young people who really don't understand the whole movement of the suffragettes and so on, to get a perspective on that and see the intersection of that in animal rights. I thought it would have been, you know, invaluable. But no, it, ne it never came to fruition. And to date, it still hasn't happened. And this, but I see this um, with the, what we call the large animal protection organizations in the United States. And it's interesting because over time they have gone from being called, some of them called animal rights organizations and some of them uh, animal welfare, but they dropped both of those monikers and now it's called animal protection, which can mean anything or nothing. Uh, so this is kind of the political minutia that we go through here in the United States in the movement. But it's interesting that when you look at webs their websites and you look at or talk to these people, well, individual activists might have a sensibility for it. The organizations themselves do not. And uh, it, it's very important. And going back to the grassroots, at least here in the United States, and I think it's true in like most of Europe, as far as I know, through what I've studied about um, labor struggles and so on, that it's always been movements that have changed politics. And that is that has always been a driving force in changing policy. You may have a really corrupt political system, but it's what we what I call movement politics or the grassroots movement that can push those actors, these people as supposedly elected officials, to move one way or another. And uh, I think it's so important because it's uh, when you look at any social justice cause, um, like for me here in the United States, when I study these, it's always been at the grassroots. That's where it all began, whether it started with Harriet Beecher Stowe's book in Cincinnati and a Presbyterian seminary. It ended up having a schism and it actually closed the seminary. But the half of the people who were for abolition went out into the world and went to every small church in rural America at the frontier at that time and argued for abolition. And the... Um, and it changed. It changed things dramatically. But, um, yeah, it's it's I'm still convinced in history shows that grassroots, it comes from groundswell up. I mean, you don't elect an official without a majority vote, <laughs> theoretically. Uh, it hasn't worked that way in the United States this time around. Yeah. But but theoretically, it's it, 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 when you have a majority of people on the side of what's just then things change. And we've seen that happen time and again throughout history. Uh, it's, it's when we become complacent, when we become myopic uh, in our activism, and that I will focus on this, because there's other people focusing on that. Well, that's where I think intersectionality is so important these days, because when we compartmentalize like that, 
we don't appreciate what other people can bring to the table and that together we're so much stronger than individual cells that are working in individual causes that separately don't have that much power but together we when we find our common cause and we find our common ground we become the force to be reckoned with yeah yeah that's great i um, i love that answer Th- thanks very much uh, harold that's brilliant yeah absolutely harold thank you so much for joining us today it's always such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear your thoughts and i'd also like to take this opportunity to thank you for everything that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals thank you very much it was an honor to be here you're so welcome. Yes, thanks, Harold. And, um, and good luck with your Trump years. <laughs> I, I have no comment. As a non-profit, I not make any political <laughs> Right. Okay, we, we will talk on uh, Facebook. <laughs>